In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there with, uh, to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company, the heavenly hosts, appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple courts when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that today we can gather in this place and pause in the midst of uh, the, the fun and celebration 
to center our hearts on the root of, of the joy of Christmas, the seriousness of what you've accomplished. So fill our hearts with joy as we reflect on the reality of Christ, as we reflect on the peace that you bring us and the salvation that he has won for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to start by saying something I think we can all agree with. Image is important. Image is important. It's why middle school kids worry about who they're going to sit with and where they're going to sit in the cafeteria. It's why adults spend so much time and money worried about how we look, what clothes we wear, exactly what color kind of car we're going to drive. Image is important. Now I'm going to say something that we maybe won't all agree with, but stick with me. God is really, really bad at image. God is really bad at image uh, building, at reputation. It feels weird to say God's bad at something, but in all the ways that we usually measure image, God does not measure up. And if that's clear at any time, it's clear at Christmas. When we celebrate the eternal Son of God taking to himself the human nature, the Creator entering his creation. Now I want you to pause and think. We just read these passages from Luke chapter 2 about the arrival of Jesus. But pause and let's imagine a hypothetical situation before Jesus was born. The Son of God's going to come, and he can craft meticulously the image he wants to have. He's taking to himself a human nature so he can do anything he want, wants. He can look exactly how he wants. He can be born anywhere he wants, in any family, any condition he wants whatsoever. He can plan it out in detail in a way we can't imagine. So how does he do it? Let's talk about his family. Think about his family first. If you were God coming to earth, what kind of family would you choose to be born into? Well, who did God choose? He chose a young woman named Mary. The custom of the time, Mary was betrothed to be married uh, to Joseph. She was engaged, essentially. She would have been 12 or 13 years old, most likely. So she's a young woman and extremely poor. That's the reason why you notice uh, we read the, when they arrived to the temple to dedicate Jesus, it talks about them being able to offer a dove or two pigeons. That was a special exception for the extremely poor who could not afford to bring or to buy a lamb. It was a special exception just for the folks who could not afford. So she was very young, young teenager, and extremely poor. There were no advantages whatsoever socially of being born into the family of Mary and Joseph. Joseph was a man who worked with his hands, blue-collar guy, and he lived in a town about the size of Spivey's Corner. Mary and Joseph of Spivey's Corner. So that was his family. Who did he pick to be the first people to hear about his arrival? Who did God pick to announce the birth of Jesus? Two, shepherds. Shepherds. Shepherds at night. This is graveyard shift. This is a job nobody wants. 
At the time, and probably even today, shepherds were part of the bottom rung of society. They lived apart from everybody else. They lived with their sheep. They were looked down upon because for no other reason they smelled. They were with sheep all day. They were probably nose blind to it. But they were social outcasts. If you were a shepherd, you were deprived of civil rights. You couldn't testify in court. You couldn't serve in office. And on that night, that third shift that nobody wants to work, they were probably women and girls. Treated as little more than property. So that's who he announced his birth to first. He's born into this family of Mary and Joseph of Spivey's Corner. He announces his birth to these shepherds who can't even testify in court. And when he goes to the temple... Who does God arrange to be there to greet him? Is it the high priest? Is it the most important religious official in Jerusalem? No, it's Simeon and Anna, two elderly people full of longing. Anna's been a widow for decades, seemingly forgotten. They're not well-networked movers and shakers. Anna, in fact, spends most of her time praying in the temple. She's not a big public uh, difference maker. This is why I say that God is bad at image building. He's bad at building an image. In our world, if you want a big name, if you want respect, you don't show up as the son of a 12-year-old. If you're God, meticulously choosing the details of your arrival into this world, you aren't born into a family. You don't announce your birth to shepherds. Maybe it'll trickle down to them eventually, but you go to the important first. Right? You maximize your platform. You don't go to the elderly. You don't go to the so-called unimportant. So God's really bad at this. Which leads us to a question. Why? Why? Is it because he's just so aloof to the way our world works? He's such a transcendent God, completely different being, and he does not get it. Or he's really bad at image, reputation, management. Because something is much more important to him. And that's what it is. God's not unaware of how this looks in our world. He knows it exactly how this is going to look. But he does all of this on purpose. He enters into poverty on purpose. He invites outcast shepherds to be the witnesses on purpose. They couldn't testify in, in court. But God chose them to be the witnesses, the testifiers of what he had arrived to do. He goes to the elderly and the forgotten on purpose. Why? Because he's not come to build an image. We build images because we want to project something to the world. We want to present ourselves in a certain way to everyone around us. And so often the images we put out in public, they obscure more than they reveal. They cover up more than they show about who we are. And we hide behind our images, like masks or costumes. But God has come to show who he truly is, and he shows it in actions. What does he show us at Christmas? Not that he needs to project an image for us to respect him, but he shows us that he will move heaven and earth. He will go to the lowest rung of society. He will go to the absolute depth of human experience to find us and to rescue us. Because he's not come to build an image, he has come to rescue. 
He has come for the ones that the world has forgotten that everybody else overlooks. He's come to those who are insignificant, who don't factor into the equations of people with power. He's come for 12-year-old girls. He's come for elderly widows. He's come for smelly shepherds and families from Spivey's Corner in Donnersville in Raleigh. And because we see God arrive into our world in this way, this way that we would consider so humiliating, this way that we would not choose to do it, we can be sure that there is no depth of self-humiliation that he will descend into in this wild pursuit of us. There are no depths so low that he will not go to show us his grace. Because he hasn't just come for the poor and the outcasts. That's good news from this passage, obviously. But he's also come for the sinful, for the messed up. He's come for the addict and the drunkard. He's come for, for the people who are, have bad images and bad reputations. He's also come for the good moral man if he'll give up his morality and come to God with open hands. If they'll lay down their self-righteousness to receive his grace. The good news of Christmas is that there is no darkness in our heart that his light cannot drive out. There's no sin so big that his grace cannot forgive. There's no wickedness in us so deep that he cannot heal. If he will be born in a stable with his crib as a, a, a feeding trough, he will descend and chase out the darkness that lies within us with the light of his love. We can be sure of that. So what we celebrate at Christmas is that our God loves us so much, that he loves you so much, that he would pursue you in this way that looks ridiculous and ludicrous to everyone else. And he would throw off every idea of good image to chase after you, to save you from yourselves and the ways of life that only lead to destruction. See, if we keep reading on, we won't keep reading on anymore. But if you keep reading on in Luke, Jesus goes even further than the passages we've just read. He keeps offering his grace to the wrong kind of people. So much so that Jesus gains a reputation among the religious leaders of being a drunk. Because he spends so much time with people who are addicted to alcohol. He doesn't care about this reputation. He keeps touching people that he's not supposed to touch. People who are diseased and infectious. People he's supposed to stay away from. He purposefully spends time with children and women. He looks them in the eye and he talks to them and honors them. And recognizes their worth in a world that doesn't. And he gathers around him followers that are not the best, that are not the brightest, that are not the most courageous and the greatest vision casters. They're not at all. They stick their foot in their mouth. They fumble over themselves. They deny him and they, 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 they struggle with doubt. And then what we celebrate at Easter, Jesus is arrested as a criminal. He's put on trial on a corrupt justice system, and he's put to death on a cross. And there, he takes on the ultimate, uh, he absorbs the evil of our world, experiencing the injustice that so many people experience in this world. 
And he experienced the wrath of God against the, 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 the wrong of sin. He is scorned. He is forsaken. He suffers and he dies. And three days later, he bursts forth from his grave and declares that even death is defeated. In the Apostles' Creed, we say that as he descends into hell, he descends to the very lowest part to rescue his people, to rescue us. God is really bad at image management because he's really good at loving us. In doing all of this, we can see it in this passage, but this is true of what God does in general. In doing all of this, Jesus transforms not only our idea of what matters as far as the image, but he transforms those who he finds. His grace transforms, and here's what I mean. In Jesus, that 12-year-old virgin girl becomes the mother of God. Mary, forgettable and common in this world. Mary of Spivey's Corner becomes the example of what it means for us to bear Jesus within us to the world around us. And because of that, we can no longer dismiss teenage girls. We can no longer dismiss women. We cannot overlook them because God sees them. God chooses them. In Jesus, these insignificant shepherds become the first announcers of the good news of his birth. These shepherds who were looked down on, who were not even trusted enough to testify in court or hold office, they become the witnesses testifying that his grace has come to earth. Because of that, you can no longer overlook the poor because God does not. He finds them and he chooses them. In Jesus, Simeon and Anna, they live out the truth of their names. I won't go too deep, but Simeon is a name that means God hears. Anna is a name that literally means God has shown me grace. In Jesus, the promise of their names are fulfilled, and we can no longer overlook the elderly as if they do not matter, because God sees them. In Jesus, all of these people are so easily overlooked and forgotten by our world or swept up into the story of God's redemption. And they're insignificant stories, to us at least. Their stories are filled, infused, radiating with meaning and glory. This morning, this Christmas, know that it does not matter your weaknesses, whether they're real or imagined. It doesn't matter your place in society. It doesn't matter your image or your reputation, earned or unearned. It does not matter the number of sins you've committed. It does not matter the resume you have. Because Christmas shows us a God who chases us, not for condemnation. God has come to us to save us, to free us, to love us. And to let us know that his love is the most fundamental thing about who we are. That our comfort in life and death are, is that we're not our own, but we belong in body and soul and life and death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Who's paid for every single one of our sins with his precious blood. Who has risen from the grave to give us new life and the hope of a tomorrow. That our stories do not end in death and futility. Uh, uh, Jesus who preserves us now so that all things must work together for our salvation. 
You are not forgotten. You are not overlooked. You are not forsaken. You are not cast off. There is nothing He will not do. And no obstacle He will not remove to bring to you this life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You that You're really bad at reputation management. Because that is profound good news. That You do not care what the so-called wise and strong of this world may think of how it looks, how ludicrous it may seem, but that you are a God who chases after us. If that means entering into shame and humiliation, you do it. If that means entering into pain and wearing our sin and, and being punished in our place, that's what you do. If it means descending into hell to defeat the power of death, that's what you do. Because you are set and you are determined on freeing us from the power of sin, the power of our own selfishness. You are set to show us your love. So I pray that as today we leave this place and we're opening presents and we're eating delicious food and we're reflecting on uh, wonderful things that you bring and maybe reflecting on things we wish were different, longings in our heart. I pray that you would press upon us, that your love for us is the most fundamental thing about who we are. And that the promise of Christmas is not just a good story from 2,000 years ago. It's a present promise in your presence with us, and it's a promise of the future. You will never stop chasing us in your love. And you will not rest, you will not stop until all things are made. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.